Good morning. Hear the word of the Lord to us from 2 Timothy. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands. Having this seal, the Lord knows who are his, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Now, in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. But be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Amen. Thank you, Cynthia, for reading today's passage. Good morning. I'm Dwayne Gray, one of the elders here at Cole Community Church. It's an honor, in fact, it's a privilege to preach today in my, one of my favorite books of the Bible, 2 Timothy. As an elder, my ministry assignment, my ministry privilege, is to serve with Cole Valley Christian Schools a ministry devoted to making disciples and training the next generation. So much of 2 Timothy is relevant to the operation and philosophy of a school that I often think of it as Paul's letter to Christian schools, and I often teach it when I minister at the school. Now, all of you who have been teachers know that the best way to learn a text is to teach it. In the case of sermons, the best way to be convicted by a text is to preach it. And according to his grace, God has given me opportunities in the last couple months to practice, not always successfully, what I'm about to preach. Thus, I realize my own imperfections as I stand here today. So please understand that when I exhort you, I'm also exhorting myself. So let's pray before I begin. Well, Father, you are good. You are gracious and you love us. And you desire to use us as sanctified vessels to accomplish your purposes, to free the lost from bondage and to bring them into your freedom. Show us this morning through your word what it means to be your useful servants. Amen. Many years ago, a pastor that I know was called to serve a small 
church in a small town in the middle of Idaho. A church had about uh, 100 people on a Sunday morning. For the first few years, things went reasonably well. He taught the word and ministered to the people. But after a few years, an elder and another member of the church decided they wanted to plant a church. Unfortunately, it was not a church plant in an unreached area. It was right across the street in a rented building. Now, they took with them most, if not all, of the young people of the church. So on Sunday mornings, the pastor could look out the window and see across the street a full parking lot, and then gaze wistfully across the almost empty auditorium or sanctuary where about 30 faithful souls were seated. The offering and his salary declined dramatically. 70% of the people were gone. He had to take another job just to stay afloat, to pay the bills. Well, how would you feel in such a situation? I know how I would feel. (laughs) I have a good idea. First, I'd be hurt. That would be natural. I would probably feel betrayed, which is also probably pretty natural. Anger. Anger would certainly be there. Well, what would you do? Complain? Speak ill of the departed church members? Try to get them to come back? Maybe even quit? Hmm. Well, before I finish the story, let's see what Paul has to say about situations like this. So stay tuned. The end is coming. The end is near. (laughs) If you have your Bibles, and you haven't already done so, please access today's passage, 2 Timothy 2, 20-26. Now, I'm actually being pretty modern. I'm using this thing called a book with paper in it, but I know many of you prefer the ancient, time-tested, traditional technique of scrolling. (laughs) So whether you're scrolling or turning pages, please back up a verse to verse verse 19 so we can get a running start at the context. Now, speaking of context, when attempting to understand a passage of Scripture, we begin by acquiring an understanding of the context, so we strive to figure out what the author intended to say when he wrote it. And by the way, this particular passage in 2 Timothy requires a lot of help from context. It has been very confusing. Now, one helpful tool in the process is to examine the structure of the passage to figure out how it fits together, why the author placed things in the order in which he did. So here's a verbal outline of today's text. As Rod discussed last week, Paul's been concerned about the troublemakers, Hymenaeus and Philetus, and he reminds Timothy in verse 19 that, Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal, the Lord knows who are his, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Then, like any good preacher, Paul inserts an illustration. He inserts this illustration in verse 20 to help Timothy understand what he's talking about when he refers to abstaining from wickedness. Now, this passage has long been mysterious to me, and it figures I'd be assigned it, right? And it has been interpreted by commentators in many, many different ways over the years. However, I've come to understand that we must let Paul have some say in how it's interpreted. Fortunately, we don't have to look far to find Paul's explanation of the illustration. It's in verse 21, right there next door. And then in verses 22 to 26... Paul explains to Timothy how this message applies in this situation. Understanding this flow keeps us from 
straying into interpretations Paul never intended. And, and then again, before we get too far into this passage, I need to point out that while Paul wrote this to Timothy and to other leaders in the church, I believe it is actually applying to all of us. All of us, even those who have no interest whatsoever in being leaders, occasionally find ourselves forced into situations where God uses us, at least momentarily, as leaders. So unfortunately, even if you don't consider yourself a leader, you still have to listen to this sermon anyway. Now, let's look at the illustration of the vessels and particularly the importance of being useful to the master, which is the first point, being useful to the master. In verse 20, Paul writes, Now in a large house there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. So why did Paul come up with this large house metaphor? Well, perhaps the reference to foundations in verse 19 started him thinking about buildings, which would not be unusual for Paul. As you read his letters, you see that he from time to time uses metaphors involving foundations and buildings. So, uh, not so unusual. As he considers the metaphor, he thinks about Ephesus, the city in which Timothy is serving. Now, at that time, Ephesus was one of the wealthiest cities in the world. And there were plenty of large houses owned by wealthy people. And, of course, in these large houses, there would be fancy gold and silver vessels and, of course, earthenware and, and wooden vessels. The difficulty we face when reviewing this metaphor, or in fact any metaphor, is determining how much of it is actually important for the meaning. Does the great house have any significance, or is it simply the backdrop for the vessels? What or whom do the vessels signify? And how do honor and dishonor apply to the vessels? Well, let's begin by reviewing the immediate context to see if the author explains it. Well, fortunately, as I mentioned earlier, Paul does explain himself, at least somewhat, in the following verses. Verse 21, for example, states, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. The word therefore, which is in the original Greek text, is important. It provides a clue that verse 21 is linked to the preceding verses and, in fact, explains them. If we look back a couple of verses to verse uh, 19, we see that this verse 21 is actually expanding on what he started in verse 19, where he says, Everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. The point that Paul wants to make with the word picture of the great house and the vessels is that the clean vessels, the ones that abstain from wickedness, are used for honorable purposes by the master. So now we can start making connections to the important features of the metaphor. Based on the words Paul uses, we know that the master is God. The vessels are people in the master's household. Given that, it's reasonable to assume that the house represents the church. And since Paul uses the word anyone in verse 22, it appears he is addressing everyone in the church, not just leaders. So any believers who cleanse themselves of the things that dishonor will be sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. You know, the desire to be useful to the master is in our DNA. Genesis 2 informs us that we were created for work. 
to serve in the garden, tending it. We were made to serve the master, and deep inside we want to be useful to him. Of course, this is kind of countercultural today, at least in two ways. First, while our culture elevates leisure and glorifies work avoidance, in God's view, work is not a bad four-letter word. Work is good. Second, our culture tells us that satisfaction comes from seeking self-fulfillment and doing our own thing. But in truth, we're only satisfied when we serve the master as a useful vessel doing his will. Disney's classic animated cartoon, Beauty and the Beast, provides an illustration of our inner need to be of service to the master. In the film, the master of the castle was turned into a beast because he was selfish. As part of the curse, all the servants in the castle were changed into objects, still alive but converted into things like candelabra and clock and a teapot. For years, the castle had no visitors. So not only do the servants long to be returned back to human form, they also yearn to serve. In the song, Be Our Guest, sung when Belle dines in the castle for the first time, the words capture the thought well. At one point, Lumiere, the maitre d' sings, Life is so unnerving for a servant who's not serving. He's not whole without a soul to wait upon. Ah, those good old days when we were useful. We all feel that, don't we? We want to be considered useful. So how do we make ourselves useful to the master? We'll look again at the first part of verse 21 where Paul writes, If anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor sanctified. All, male, female, layman, leader, are invited to cleanse themselves to be useful to the master. The things from which we're to cleanse ourselves are not spelled out, but the reference seems to be to the false teachings that Paul had mentioned earlier in the letter. As a result of cleansing ourselves, we become vessels for honor, sanctified or made holy. Sanctification is one of those imposing religious words we often hear but don't understand. The underlying meaning is to be separated or set apart for holy use. Now, you might be asking some questions. If we're saved by grace, then how can we be required to cleanse ourselves? How do we make ourselves sanctified or holy? And doesn't that seem like works-based righteousness? Well, I'm glad you asked those questions because it causes us to delve into the important theological concept of sanctification. Remember that Paul is writing to believers already in the kingdom, adopted into God's family as his children by God's grace, a grace that Paul describes earlier in chapter 1, verse 9, regarding God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. To be clear, our salvation does not depend upon our work. It's all about God's work in us. This part of the process is called justification by theologians. Sanctification, on the other hand, is a lifelong process by which we are more and more conformed to Christ's likeness, according to Romans 8.29. The Spirit is at work in us, and in addition, God allows us to participate or cooperate with the Spirit. 
Theologian Wayne Grudem defines sanctification as a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. Hmm. Well, as an illustration, since I'm a preacher, I'm going to give an illustration. Consider human families. In families that function well, the parents love the children unconditionally. The children are considered a part of the family even if they misbehave. However, there is an expectation that the children will, over time, develop more and more of the family characteristics. Our kids, when they were young, quickly learned it was unwise to begin an argument with, my friend's parents let them do it. The response they came to expect was, we are not like other people. We are not lemmings. We don't do things just because other people do it. Well, we were trying to train our children to, to think for themselves, you know, to, to make choices consistent with our values. Now, note that the process was a combination of our promptings and their will. And all the time, whether they obeyed us or not, they knew we still loved them. They were in the family, and frankly, there wasn't anything they could do about that. However, the development of family characteristics was something in which they played a role. Thus, while we are saved by grace, not by works, as members of God's family, like a human infant, we're expected to grow. Christ commands us to love one another. He commands us to love our enemies, to be merciful. Paul frequently commands us to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. If we cultivate God the character, we will be vessels useful to the Master, prepared for every good work. To summarize the first point, make it your goal to be useful to the Master. Well, how do we become useful to the Master? What specifically does Paul have in mind? Well, verses 22 and 23 help answer that question and provide the second point. Flee evil and pursue good. This is what Paul had in mind regarding how to cleanse oneself from the things that dishonor. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Refuse foolish and ignorant speculations knowing that they produce quarrels. In these two verses, Paul provides two negative commands flee and refuse, and one positive command, pursue. Paul is saying, Timothy, to cleanse yourself, do the following. Flee youthful lusts, pursue godly behavior toward others, and refuse to engage in fruitless arguments. Flee, run away from, avoid youthful lusts. What does Paul mean by youthful lusts? Now, this is a case where our initial thoughts need to be corrected by the context. Paul is instructing Timothy about how to deal with false teachers. It's pretty clear from verses 22 to 26 that Paul is not writing about youthful sensuality. John Calvin, in his classic commentary, notes that Paul is referring to the tendency of young men to be hot-headed, quick to lose their tempers, and therefore rush forward into arguments with more confidence and rashness than men of riper age. Paul tells us to flee those tendencies of youth. Instead of being quick-tempered, we are to pursue, to chase, to hunt down righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. If we want to be useful to the Master, these qualities are what we need to cultivate. Righteousness is not self-righteousness, a complaint many people lodge against Christians. Rather, it is aligning our actions and our attitudes 
to the standard set by God. The next word, faith, has a range of meanings from denoting belief in God to implying faithfulness. And I think in this context, Paul is encouraging Timothy and us to cultivate a trust in God, having such a strong belief that God is in control that there is no need for our vigorous response to every little slight. As a result, others will see in us the other meaning of faith. They will see that we are trustworthy, even in difficult situations. The next word, love, is a Greek word, agape. It's a love that is an expression of the will, not a matter of warm feelings. It's required. It's required of Christ's followers. Jesus said if we love him, we will keep his commandments. And his command is to love one another and love our enemies. So when someone says or does something we don't like, we must remember that we are called to act in love toward them. We may still have to confront the evil that they are doing, but our approach is of love rather than vengeance or ill temper. Peace is a good word to close the list. Peace is wholeness of relationship. We have peace with God because our relationship has been restored by Christ's death on the cross in Romans 5. And we're called to be at peace with others as much as possible, as described in Romans 12.18 or Hebrews 12.14. Then Paul says, surround yourself with people who will be a good influence. That is, followers of Christ who really do try to live for him. Paul recognizes that it is difficult to consistently live in a manner that pleases God without a community to help keep us on track. After having encouraged Timothy to pursue good, Paul then returns to the flee evil theme in verse 23. It reminds Timothy of the issue he's been addressing. Stay away from foolish and ignorant speculations because they only cause fruitless bickering. The word foolish is the Greek word moros, from which we get our sophisticated word moron. Note that Paul is not calling the opponents morons. He's describing their arguments as foolish. Next, Paul uses a word that is variously translated ignorant or stupid, but literally means uneducated, a particularly pointed critique of the supposedly learned opponents. Okay, does this mean we're not supposed to engage in debate at all? What about refuting those who are teaching error? We know Paul expected Timothy to do so, to deal with the false teachers. He, he writes in chapter 4, verse 2, that Timothy is to preach the word, reprove, reprove, <laughs> rebuke, and exhort. Now, this is hardly a passive stance. So I think Paul is explaining in this passage that there are right ways and wrong ways to engage with those who have opposing views. I see two principles here. First, recognize that there are some arguments just not worth the effort, and we shouldn't get involved in them at all. Foolish arguments are about trivial matters that, even when they're resolved, have no value. For example, consider the periodic resurgence of the debate on who is the Antichrist, as described in uh, John, 1 John and 2 John. Those of us old enough probably remember in the 80s the debate about Mikhail Gorbachev. You know, he had that weird birthmark on his head, and he was the leader of this communist nation. Surely he was the Antichrist, right? 
You know, over the history of Christianity, many people and organizations have been tarred with that label, Antichrist. If we just consider fairly recent history, we have some pretty good candidates. Hitler, Stalin, and just about every modern U.S. president. For example, Ronald has six letters. Wilson has six letters. Reagan has six letters. 666, Mark of the Beast. Hmm. Well, even Bill Gates, founder of Microsoft, is on the list because it's claimed that there's a way to make his name add up to 666. Hmm. You know, when computerized technology refuses to work the way I want it to, I sometimes think it is demon-possessed. <laughs> But that's idle speculation. As interesting as diverting as this debate might be, and I admit they can be interesting discussions, it has no real value. It does not change our daily lives. It has not, it's not central to the faith. And to outsiders looking in, we look really foolish, especially if we become angry with each other. So first, stay away from those foolish arguments, especially if it looks like they're going to cause division. Second, the way we approach an argument matters. Righteousness, faith, love, and peace are to characterize us, not to rush impatiently into an argument, much as I love to do so, arrogant about the rightness of our viewpoint, striving to demolish our opponents, We're not to get into endless bickering and quarreling. If you've been observing our culture over the last decade or so, you've probably noticed how social media and the 24-7 news cycle foster a climate full of outrage. Every perceived little slight, every microaggression, every disagreement caused people to be offended and rage, you know, just react with outrage. Fueled by this righteous indignation, people do not calmly discuss the issues. Instead, we see people assassinating the character of their opponents. We see doxing, you know, the broadcasting of private identifying information to harass people. Missing in all this is a concern for the truth and a concern for people. Unfortunately, we usually regard our own anger as righteous indignation. And the truth is, our anger, my anger generally flares up because we feel some personal affront. James 1.20 tells us that the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. So we need to be careful how we approach an argument. Remember that righteousness, faith, love, and peace are to characterize our conduct and our attitude. Of course, controversies and disagreements are inevitable. Avoid the foolish ones. When necessary to engage, disagree without being disagreeable. Paul reminds us that we have been placed on this earth to pursue not self-righteousness, but to pursue the righteousness of God. We have, been not, we have not been placed on this earth to trust in ourselves, but to trust God. He is the one responsible for changing hearts. We have not been placed on this earth just to love ourselves, but to love God first, to love our neighbors and ourselves, and in fact, to love our enemies We have not been placed on this earth to sow discord and hatred, but to cultivate peace even in the midst of disagreement. In summary, verses 22 and 23 remind us that in the midst of contentious situations, we are to flee evil and pursue good. In the next verses, Paul continues describing the right way to deal with opponents. And the key point here is love our opponents. Now, it's worth pointing out that these opponents were teaching aberrant theology, theology that was causing harm If anyone deserved to be treated harshly, these people did. 
And what does Paul say? The Lord's bondservant, verse 24. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Paul has been talking about opponents who are clearly being used by Satan. Now, obviously, not everyone who disagrees with us is a tool of Satan. That would be really bad. If these people who are doing evil are to be treated with kindness and patience and gentleness, how much more so should we treat those who are fellow Christians who happen to disagree with us, with whom we have a little spat? You know, this is the typical stuff of human life, right? So Paul understands that our ultimate objective has to be redemptive, bringing those in error back to the Lord. He also understands that we do not serve ourselves, but we serve the Master. We are the Lord's bondservants. Paul frequently in his letters refers to himself as the Lord's bondservant. And the word is actually properly con- uh, translated as slave. You know, slaves do not have their own rights. They exist to serve the Master. The term slave does not apply only to leaders. It applies to every Christian. We have all been purchased by Christ's blood, and we all owe him our lives. Again, as slaves, our purpose is to humbly serve the master, doing his will, not our own. So how does a slave serve the master? Well, a slave must not be quarrelsome. This follows verse 23, where we're told to refuse being lured into quarrels. The words come from a Greek root word meaning or implying physical combat, right, with swords and shields and all that. It was also used metaphorically about a war of words or a verbal dispute. Now wait, are we supposed to contend for the faith according to Jude 3? And didn't Paul dispute with the Jewish leaders in the synagogues and with the philosophers on Mars Hill in Acts 17? Hmm. Well, many people, including me, ask this question when studying this passage. Well, Norman Geisler and Thomas Howe in their big book of Bible difficulties, which is a fun book, by the way, answer this way. A distinction must be made between the two senses of what it means to argue and to contend, or to contend. Arguing is not necessarily wrong, but being argumentative is. We should contend for the faith, but we should not be contentious in so doing. Making an earnest effort to defend the faith is good, but engaging in fruitless quarrels is not. So, in summary, the attitude is what makes the difference. Next, we're instructed to be kind to all. And yes, as much as we wish the text said, be kind to most, The original text does say all. We're called to be kind and gentle or mild in our dealings with opponents. In addition, the Lord's slave is to be able to teach. Now, Paul had in mind the leaders of the Ephesian church when he wrote the letter. So we have to ask, does this being able to teach apply to everyone? Fair question. Well, as I said before, whether we consider ourselves teachers or not, we all end up in these occasional situations were forced temporarily to take on the lead. And fortunately, if you've been investing time reading the Word, 
praying, fellowshipping with believers, and sitting under good teaching, then you will have something good to share, to impart when the opportunity presents itself. If you have been uncontentious, you've been kind and patient with people, you will find openings to impart the truth. So I maintain that even those of us who are not called to be teachers still must be alert to those occasional God-ordained appointments where we have the opportunity to teach. The last word in verse 24 is variously translated not resentful, patient when wronged, patiently enduring evil, forbearing, patient, patient with difficult people. The sheer variety of translations indicates the richness of the original Greek word, which I will not try to pronounce, is formed from two words, a word meaning I will endure and a word meaning evil. Those who have this quality are ready to put up with evil, not to endorse it, not to approve it, but being able to bear up without resentment when evil is inflicted upon them. The Amish are a classic example of this. They have a reputation for bearing up under evil without resentment when something bad is inflicted upon them. In Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania, October 3, 2006, the man whom the Amish community knew as their milk truck driver burst into a one-room schoolhouse and shot ten girls before killing himself. The community was devastated, yet in their grief, they forgave the killer, they attended his burial service, and as time went on, they even donated money to the killer's widow and children. This was not easy for them. The Amish grieved deeply. Many of them required counseling and needed time to heal, but they understood the importance of following the Lord's commandments to love others and to be a forgiving people, able to bear up under evil. And a watching world was given a chance to see the love of Christ in action. In verse 25, Paul writes that we are to gently correct those in opposition. The Greek word gentle, translated gentle, denotes the humble and gentle attitude which expresses itself in particular in a patient submissiveness to offense, free from malice and desire for revenge. You know, I'm sensing a theme here in Paul's thinking. He is really emphasizing putting up with bad things done to us by others. In our culture, we're encouraged to stand up for ourselves and not take any guff from anybody. Of course, in our culture, it's all about me, right? It's all about me and what I need. In God's culture, it's all about others and what they need. It's all about loving others, and specifically, strangely, it's about loving our enemies, loving our opponents. Verses 25 and 26 explain why. If perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Because we love our opponents, we want to see them freed from their bondage to lies and to Satan. God wants to give them every opportunity to hear the truth in a way that allows them to receive it favorably. As God's servants, our objective is to allow God to use us 
to create those favorable opportunities by humbly showing our opponents love. In summary, we are to love our opponents. Well, as I advertised, the end of the story here, it's time to finish the story of the pastor whose church endured a split. Now, even though I could see outside the windows there how much bigger the other church was, he and his wife decided that they would continue preaching the word without saying anything about the betrayal. He realized that he was not just a hireling who had run from danger. He was a shepherd called to tend this particular flock, even though it meant he had to take a second job just to stay afloat. Well, however, after about seven years, people started drifting back, finding that the new church they went to was not providing the teaching that they really desired. Over time, more and more people migrated back until just a few years ago, that other church finally closed its doors. This pastor is an example of refusing to be quarrelsome, but instead pursuing righteousness, faith, love, and peace in the midst of an emotionally explosive situation. And the master used him as a vessel for honor. Now, in Timothy's case, the division he was enduring and facing was caused by people within the church teaching false doctrine, specifically in that case that the resurrection had already occurred. Now, even though that was a very serious error, Timothy was instructed to treat them with kindness. So what would be a modern equivalent of that kind of controversy, causing churches to split and generating a lot of unkind behavior? Well, one topic that fits that description is same-sex marriage. It is a political hot potato. It's caused major denominations to split. It has caused divisions among friends and families. Many Christians and many churches believe that same-sex marriage is fine. It's blessed by God. And many do not. Of course, Cole Community Church has clearly stated our view on the subject. Our Constitution contains this sentence. The Bible teaches that marriage was designed by God to be the lifelong union of one genetic man and one genetic woman. And only within the context of such a marriage does sexual intimacy have God's blessing. Well, since we believe that those who advocate for same-sex marriage are in error, and given what we have just been studying this morning, how do we handle this controversy? First of all, we cannot compromise the truth. As Rod taught last week, we must handle the Word of God accurately. But second, and equally important, how we treat people matters. We are to avoid debates that generate nothing good. We are not to be self-righteous, but to be clothed with God's righteousness, a righteousness that proclaimed a love for all people, John 3.16. We are to trust God, not ourselves and not our own schemes. We are to love God wholeheartedly and love our neighbors as ourselves. And Paul's point is that we are specifically to love those who are teaching error. We are to work for peace or wholeness in relationships. We are to be kind and be willing to put up with evil done to us and not be resentful. We are ready to teach and correct with gentleness when the opportunity arises. All of this is done with the attitude of redemption. 
We remember that our enemy is Satan, not the people who disagree with us. We want people to be in right relationship with God. In conclusion, church life has been and always will be filled with controversy that threatens to divide us. As we encounter these controversies, let let us remember the words of Paul. Refuse to engage in fruitless arguments. Trust God. Love people. Cultivate peace. Be kind. Be gentle. Bear up under evil without resentment. Seek opportunities to gently teach and correct those in error. Our goal is to be useful to the master, so flee evil, pursue good, love our, na- love our opponents. So let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that it's really difficult for us to love those with whom we have conflict. We also acknowledge that you loved us even when we were your enemies. Therefore, we request wisdom and strength so that we can truly be of service to you, the Master, being vessels of honor, bringing people into right relationship with you. Amen.